welcome back. We have a lot to cover this week with chapter 13, 14, and 15. So first up, let's talk about chapter 13 content with identification evidence. And what we're talking about here is mainly eyewitness identification. So you see someone do something criminal, which is one of the main types of direct evidence that we use in our criminal justice system, but it also can be a type of circumstantial evidence too, um, where maybe you saw the specific person in the vicinity of the crime moments after it occurred. So you didn't see them commit the crime, but your identification can put them near the scene of the crime. And we use this type of evidence a lot, as nearly 75,000 people are annually brought to trial based primarily on eyewitness evidence. So what's the problem here? If someone saw something happen right in front of them, clearly the they must be good at identifying the person who did it, right? right? Not so much, especially if the person who committed the crime was a stranger to them. When it comes to eyewitness identification, people can many times be downright inaccurate. Sadly, this type of evidence is actually the leading cause of wrongful conviction. Of the cases that the Innocence Project has worked on, and remember, they only do DNA-based cases, so they've only done about 360 of the more than 2,500 exoneration cases in the United States. But of those they've worked on, nearly 70% had eyewitness misidentification as a contributing factor to that wrongful conviction. And that number should be staggering. Even of the 2,500, nearly 35% had elements of eyewitness misidentification as a factor. So that's nearly 875 cases. So this is a real problem within our system. So how is someone so wrong about what they say they saw? Well, for starters, there are problems with memory, um, as they are malleable and we essentially can create false ones to match what we thought we saw. We covered this earlier, the, this term, with the work from Dr. Loftus at UC Irvine. Um, and in the research that she conducted, it was surprisingly easy to manipulate memory, which calls into question whether people can actually recall events. In addition to this, there are CJ system variables that also play a role in misidentification. The police can actually make people think that they are right about their selections, both consciously and subconsciously. So in the past, if you were called in to look at a photo lineup, it typically was what we called a six-pack with those six photos. And this allows the victim or witness to compare the faces to one another. And crazy enough, they're likely to simply pick the one that most closely resembles what they remember, even if it isn't 100% accurate. And then once they pick this person, the police officer involved may give cues to the person that they did, quote unquote, a good job or picked the right person, leading the person to grow in what we call their confirmation bias. And this again happens in the actual lineup. So by the time they get to court, they have been told multiple times that they picked the right person. So why should they doubt themselves on the stand when they testify? And while witnesses and victims and officers are rarely just downright trying to get um, get that specific person, it can happen. It typically, though, seems to be the desire to get someone for the crime that leads to these problems. We just want to solve it, and sometimes those blinders are on because of it. And this is why better practices are to do things like a sequential lineup, which is a one-by-one -one photo lineup where the person doing the identification does not know how many photos will be given, and then they can't compare them. And the officer giving the lineup is not involved in the case, so they cannot give some subconscious cues to the witness or victim because they don't know who it should be either, so they can't give those cues to them. And another major problem with eyewitness evidence is the racial factor. People of different races are inherently bad at identifying someone from another race. So if I'm white and the person who committed the crime against me is Hispanic, Asian, Black, etc., my odds of being able to accurately identify this person go down substantially. I did an experiment um, last semester in this class, actually, 
where um, I had another professor come in. So Professor Connolly, one of our communications professors, came in, argued with me, stole my keys, and hurried out of our classroom. And it happened right in front of my student's eyes. Yet the only person or the only people who were able to identify him correctly were mainly people from his same racial group, which was Black, while the rest of the class thought that he was Hispanic or even Middle Eastern. So again, eyewitnesses aren't all that great, even when the crime happens right in front of them. And the small caveat I will note is that most of this pertains to stranger-based crimes. If the parties are known to each other, much of what we just talked about doesn't apply. Okay, so that's the gist of what you need to know about eyewitness misidentification. It's the leading cause of wrongful conviction, and we need better procedures in place to control for errors. All right, next up is the Chapter 14 content on physical evidence. So physical evidence is sometimes called real evidence and essentially is tangible evidence that we can see, such as a weapon, drugs, clothing, blood, hair, footprints, handprints, etc. Pretty much all the things you likely think of when you think of evidence. And we'll dig into the actual ethical issues of some of these pieces of evidence in the next weeks. But in the meantime, Physical evidence seems pretty straightforward, so what could be the problem here? Well, the problem is generally in the acquisition of it. Most times, officers need warrants to obtain evidence, but there are also times when officers can obtain evidence without a warrant. So think back to our content about searches earlier this term, because we'll dig right into it. So when can officers obtain this evidence without a warrant? Well, when the situation falls into a few categories, because remember, there's always exceptions to the rule. So number one is consent searches. 90% of searches that are warrantless fall into this category. People assume that they need to say yes to the police, so they often volunteer themselves or places to be searched even though they don't have to, which is crazy, I know. And that's why I taught you all about your rights in this class so that you know this. But nonetheless, it's an interesting ethical concern as it draws the question of whether or not we should have police have to tell people that they're allowed to say no, because as it stands, they don't have to, and rarely will they. Number two is that we have stop and frisk, so Terry stop exceptions, where officers can pat you down to feel for weapons and contraband. The problem here is that the practice has been abused many times, and it seems to be used without the requisite true reasonable suspicion and used mainly on young men of color, which isn't okay. So see that stop and frisk data out of New York um, that I supplied you earlier in the term. And then number three is search as incident to arrest. So once you arrest someone, you're able to search them. And this is a safety issue, and many don't really argue with the utility of it. Remember, though, there are restrictions. Just because you arrest someone doesn't mean you can now go search their house, nor can you search, say, their cell phone. So it does have restrictions. Number four is plain view. If the evidence is in plain view and the police had legal authority to be there, that can also be seized. So if you have drugs on your passenger seat when you get pulled over, that's fair game. Um, so are the marijuana plants growing in your front window. Not that any of you would do that. Um, and number five, there's also an automobile exception. And automobiles and boats um, can move easily and immediately. So police can search them by establishing their own probable cause and not waiting for a warrant if they have reasonable belief that the contraband is inside of it. And then number six is exigent circumstances or hot pursuit. So if police believe that evidence is being destroyed, they can seize it, even if they themselves create the exigent circumstance. And that's really the problem with this one. There's little check on police power, and that in and itself is an ethical issue. And if they're chasing down a suspect and he enters his domicile, police can search without a warrant without first obtaining um, without first obtaining that warrant. So basically, police have many ways to obtain physical evidence without a warrant, and there are ethical concerns with many of them. 
Lastly, let's talk about evidence from computers and wiretapping, so digging into some of the Chapter 15 content. As technology has grown in its use, so too has it grown as a type of evidence in many types of cases. So electronic communication, computer-based files, images that are stored on computers, et cetera, et cetera. But all of these generally are cons considered private, and so we have to balance privacy with security here. In most instances, law enforcement need warrants to search anything electronic, and they need to be specific about what they're searching for. They can't just go dig through every nook and cranny of your computer or cell phone. Further, computer-based evidence, and especially evidence that stems from the internet, is particularly challenging as there are often many jurisdictional challenges that come up as well. And this is why local police do some of it, but the FBI actually handles a lot of this because it falls into jurisdiction for them. In addition to computer evidence, police can also sometimes use wiretapping and electronic surveillance. And again, the police must generally go through similar procedures as for when they wish to get a warrant in order to use these things. However, these options also call into question a lot of issues of privacy. Most times there are many other things that will get caught up in the collection of this evidence and things that are deemed to be private. So a good example here is those sneak and peek warrants that allow for essentially spy cameras to track criminal behavior. And they've used these for sting operations um, at like massage parlors when they think that people are involved in sex crimes or human trafficking. However, what about the people going in for a real massage that are now potentially captured naked and on these cameras? Definitely a privacy issue. And there's a great example of this with the video of the Patriots owner in the slides. There are also concerns over how we use tracking devices and whether or not these are another invasion of privacy. The court has said that as long as police put the GPS tracker on and off in public spaces, they can be used, which tends to surprise people. Further, there are concerns over wiretapping cell phones, landlines, emails, etc. for communication, as well as having informants wear wires and or using recorded devices to gather evidence. So the overarching theme that I hope you see with this chapter is that there's a lot of uncharted and new territory when it comes to technology and that the limits are endless for law enforcement unless proper restrictions are put in place to balance security with privacy. All right, until next time.